What's up, everybody? How's it going? Welcome to this second episode of the Dan's Great Podcast. In this one, I will be chatting with my friend Toby Ott. Before we jump in, I just want to mention that we will be talking about The Last of Us 2, uh, and we will go quite in depth. There will be some spoilers related to the story. So if you do not want any The Last of Us 2 spoilers, then you will have to stop listening once the topic comes up in the podcast. I hope you guys enjoy listening and maybe learn something as well. Welcome everyone to another Dan's Great podcast. And this time I am joined by my good friend, Toby. Hey, Toby, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I am doing well. It's good to be chatting to you again. Same here. It's great to be chatting to you again as well. It really is. I think a lot of people listening to this are already going to know who you are, hopefully, thanks to the stuff I've shared about you in the past. But in case they don't, uh, I think you should introduce yourself to the listeners so they know who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Toby Ott and I'm 31 years old. I was born with a condition called bilateral anophthalmia, which means that I was born without eyes. So I have no sight at all, no light perception or anything. And I've been totally blind since birth. Yeah, so Toby, um, in terms of how we met and how I know Toby, basically we have a story that goes back a few years so maybe we should probably start with how we met each other and uh, became acquainted so um, Toby is someone that reached out to me like on YouTube and basically I found out that he was into video games and I also later found out that he had a visual impairment and what I found really interesting was that when Toby like messaged me and we were going back and forth uh, he talks about the fact that he really enjoys playing video games as well And for me, the interesting part of that was obviously like, wait a minute, what the hell? Like, how do you play video games? So I think we should like dive into that aspect of things first. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like, how did you discover video games and how did you get into video games and all that kind of stuff? Well, the first video game I ever played was Mortal Kombat 1 on one of those old coin arcade machines on a caravan site where... Me and my family used to go on holiday and I started playing Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter and all those kind of games. And then I can't remember how long after that, but I got a PlayStation 1. Mm-hmm. And the first two, I even remember the first two games I ever got, which were Tekken 2 and a fighting game set in space called Star Gladiator. And then... I sort of got into more fighting games like Battle Arena to Shinden. But even before that, I had an old DOS computer where I was playing games like Doom, mm-hmm. Duke Nukem 3D, Blood, Quake, all those kind of games. Wow. So it, sound, it, sounds, to me, it sounds to me like fighting games were like the first kind of games that you got into it with? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Fighting games were really how I started playing games in the first place. And obviously it wasn't until 2002 when I got, when I had a PS2 and my cousin bought the game Final Fantasy X mm-hmm. that everything changed in my gaming life forever, really. So there we go. There it is again, that Final Fantasy X. So anyone listening to this would, would have known that Final Fantasy X was going to come up at some point and come up it did. So obviously, in terms of like our connection, uh, it was through the Final Fantasy content that you watched on my channel where we met each other, right? Well, the first thing that I ever did found out 
about your channel was I was always looking for Final Fantasy X walkthroughs to watch because I always loved seeing how different people play the game because every person plays the game differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, going back to my first playthrough as well, you know, didn't understand, me and my cousin didn't understand how the sphere grid worked and we were we got all the way to every with level one magic <laughs> uh, and stuff like that. But then once we worked out in 2009, we did another playthrough and understood how the sphere grid worked. And me, my cousin, and my best mate did Final Fantasy X on PS2 and did everything the game had to offer, including like beating Penance. In terms of your playthrough, I found your playthrough purely by accident. And I started watching it. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. He's done a really good playthrough of FF10. And I started watching it and I was so impressed. I really was because like, oh my God, this guy is knowledgeable. I mean, I'm learning stuff that I didn't even click about, you know? And, and then obviously you started doing FF9. And you read all the voice out, all the like dialogue, and that's what made me want to contact you to say, you know, thanks for reading the dialogue. I've always wanted to know what the story of FF9 was about, and because of you, I was able to get a feel for the story in the game and everything else. See, I mean, for for me, that's one of those really interesting moments where before I before I was going to play Final Fantasy IX, because up until that point on the channel, I'd done like more modern voice acted Final Fantasies. When I was looking at Final Fantasy IX, I was thinking, well, there's no dialogue in this game and there's going to be a lot to read. You know, um, how is this going to work? Is it going to be a bit boring because I have to read everything? You know, I can't literally voice act, you know, to any reasonable degree, like all of the, the characters and all that kind of stuff. So it was really daunting. And to me, it felt like it might not turn out so well. But it's one of those things where after I did it, you know, I got some nice feedback. And then obviously when you reached out to me about it, it was one of those moments where you just, it's just not something that you ever really think about as a, as a content creator. But just the fact that I decided to, to play through the game in that way and do the, the commentary and read out the story and all that kind of stuff. People that have like a visual impairment that wouldn't have been able to play the game, you literally wouldn't have been able to enjoy the story without someone reading out the text for you. So the fact that I was able to do that, like even though it wasn't specifically designed for that, the fact that it had like this this sort of knock-on effect of being able to help people like you experience the story, it just blew my mind when you reached out to me. It's just so interesting. Yeah, I agree, you know, and I'm so glad to get in touch with you because of, you know, the thing we both have in common, which is Final Fantasy X, you know. Of course. So I wanted to talk to you about that game and, you know, say... Well, me and my cousin and my mate did something that no one has ever done before, which is beat Penance without Waka, without attack rules. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, when we were like first, I think it was via email or was it YouTube personal messages? I don't remember. It was years ago now. but um, I think it was email. Yeah, I think it was email. And I remember just, I think for me, like the, the moment where it really clicked was, was when you actually talked about these things that you were doing in games. And obviously, like for me, it was always like, wait a minute, what the hell? Like, how, how is any of this possible? So when it comes to, I think you know, video games and stuff, I think it'd be cool to to talk about like how do you, how do you actually play these games? How does it work for you? Uh, well, in terms of Final Fantasy, yeah, uh, I had to have my cousin or mate, uh, 
or even my dad when <laughs> I had to ask him for help, uh, teach me the menu layouts. So in fights and stuff, I had to learn where things were, like attack, magic, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then once I learned that, I was pretty much able to fight on my own. Um, I can even do some walking parts as well. Like I remember one time I walked along the whole of the Meehan High Road completely independently. Yeah, I think you, Final Fantasy X obviously is one of those games where the the small minority that don't like the game will criticize it because it's so linear. But in this like really niche little context, the fact that it's so linear and it's such a corridor in most places is really useful because you can literally just press like up on the analog stick or on the D-pad and you can get from A to B quite easily for most of the game, like other than maybe Calmlands or something. For a lot of the game, you can just kind of just press a direction and it will get you there. Yeah, exactly. Um, same with FF12 and FF13. I got good at those games as well, um, you know, in terms of playing them. And I, I beat stuff on both games, which people were like, oh my God, how did you beat that? I was like, well, a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to some of the more specifics of that kind of stuff. But um, So when it came to, like, the, I think you said you started with with fighting games and and that sort of stuff. What was, like, those really, like, earliest days, like, the first time you ever had a controller in your hand and you were, like, trying to figure figure things out? Like, what was the earliest memories of gaming like for you? I can't really remember, to be honest, because it was so long ago. Um, Yeah. But I remember playing Tekken 2 and not doing very well. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Uh, And then it was one time where I was just like, oh, my God, I'm actually winning. And actually completed Tekken 2 for the first time. I was like, yes, I've completed it. And Wow. Complete the arcade mode, yeah. That's impressive, man. And I was like, oh, my God, I've actually done it. And then, you know, I always thought Mortal Kombat 1 never had a final boss or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it turned out the reason for that was because I was so rubbish at it, I kept losing. Because <laughs> um, I don't know if you know, but those early arcade games, the AI was ridiculous. Right. It was crazily difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, to this day, I've never, ever completed Mortal Kombat 2 for that reason. Right, okay. But... You know, the first Mortal Kombat I actually completed arcade mode on was Mortal Kombat 3 and Mortal Kombat 4. Okay. But, you know, just playing these games, I was just like, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm enjoying this so much. When it comes to, let's say, I mean, when you compare it to other things, like, let's say, listening to music or, like, you know, films and that kind of stuff, how does, like, a a gaming experience compare to you as someone who's, like, visually impaired? Like, how does it, how different does it feel? to those kind of experiences? Uh, quite different at first, I guess. But obviously nowadays, it's the first game that I thought, this is like a film, was FF10. Yeah, I can you imagine. Know, I, keep, yeah. I, keep going, but I keep going back to FF10, I'm sorry. but <laughs> you, you, do not, you do not need to apologize for that on this podcast. <laughs> you know, that was a game where I was like, this is like playing for a movie. Yeah, exactly. Especially because those cutscenes as well. I mean, they were so long in parts where there, there'd be times where like you'd forget you'd forget that you were playing a game sometimes. Yeah, I, I always thought it would make a great film in the cinema. 
it really would ff10 well i mean I, I i certainly agree with that that's why i did the whole like video game movie stuff it was the first game that i ever turned into like a video game movie because i, I obviously really loved the narrative as well and i wanted to share it with people well you're saying about that i've actually been sending that movie out to a lot of my blind friends ah, okay. who have never sort of heard of it and stuff like that and mm-hmm. they're watching it and they're really enjoying it yeah so. i mean again it's another one where i guess for, for people that aren't able to play the game themselves it's a nice way for them to be able to just focus in on the story without having to you know a walkthrough of that game would take a really long time so for them to, to sit down and just like focus on the actual cinematics and the story that's just that's just a definitely another good reason for making something like that i think yeah, but I've also sent your walkthrough about as well to people because they're like, how does the gameplay work mm-hmm. and stuff like that? So I've, I always use your walkthrough as a base mm-hmm. when I'm showing people how FF10 works. So in terms of like everything that you've played up until this point, because you've been clearly, since you've started so early, you've, you've been gaming since the PS1 days. Like, What are your like all-time favorite gaming experiences? Um. I have a list actually. Uh, it, it has changed a bit actually recently, but okay. Number three is Final Fantasy Twelve. Okay. Final Fantasy Ten for years has been on the top spot, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, it has now moved to second. Yes, apparently so. Uh, because a certain other game called The Last of Us Part Two is now my top game. Of all time yes indeed we're going to be talking more in depth about the last of us 2 like once we uh, get further into this but it, I'm, I'm really glad that the last of us 2 has worked out for you in that sense because you were like the the first person i thought of when i heard about these like accessibility features for the game so the fact that you enjoyed it so much is great but we're going to get to like a more in-depth discussion on the last of us 2 a little bit later but at this point i want to start talking about when we first met each other and we were talking, um, once you mentioned to me that you play video games yourself and that you've done, like you've accomplished certain things in video games, like I say, my, my mind obviously went to, wait a minute, like how is this possible? How is this guy playing video games where, you know, he's got the, he's blind, he shouldn't be able to do the things that he's able to do. How is this possible? And for me at the time, I was, I was like a, you know, my filmmaking career was, was really kind of fresh and I was always on the hunt for like new ideas of things I could do. And as soon as you mentioned that, I was like, this would be a really cool documentary of like this guy who was born blind but has this passion for video games. And I remember thinking, like while I was emailing you, I had this like light bulb moment. And I was thinking, if only this guy lived somewhere near me so that I could actually like meet him and we could make a documentary together. But obviously via email, I had no idea where you were from. And so I remember like messaging you to say, whereabouts are you based? And I think you said like Kent or something like that. And I was like, holy shit, that's like only about an hour from where I live. And it was like this, you know, let's make a documentary together. Let's let's document this, um, you know, your passion for games and your story. And so then we made a documentary together. Yeah, we did indeed. And why has that documentary been a major success, you know, for nearly over three years now? Uh, I think in three years it's had seven million views all over the world. Yeah, I remember when it basically like when I had the idea, it was going to be like this little thing that I was going to post on my YouTube channel. And, you know, just the, you know, subscribers, people generally like involved in my YouTube community were going to see it. 
And so, you know, we set it all up and, you know, I came over to, to your place. I met you. I met your wonderful family and we sat down. I interviewed you kind of a little bit similar to, to this, but obviously it was a bit more kind of, it wasn't loose like this. It was, a, it was more structured and condensed and I had much more specific questions to ask you. And of course there was like the whole, I wanted to see how you, how you played video games. That really interested me. And, you know, we did that whole thing. Uh, we filmed your story. We filmed you playing some games. Uh, beating some bosses like Evray, for example. I remember you were fighting uh, in the documentary recording. Yeah, and I remember being really over leveled for it and killing it in like less than like five hits or something. <laughs> it, was... it, it wasn't quite that short, but you were definitely quite highly leveled. But I mean, it's one of those things where obviously you know you do you do what you got to do to to be able to win. I mean, it was still really impressive to watch. I think for me, like when I was watching you play, for me the the most impressive thing was how how well you'd memorize the menus like if i was just watching you using the menus of Final fantasy 10 there is no way that i would guess that that you were blind because you just remembered and knew where everything was and i just thought like the memory needed to do that was was really crazy like i thought you must have a really impressive memory to to be able to do these things yeah and another thing i did before that battle it took forever but i actually got blitzes with titus for that purpose for that battle because I thought having Blitzes that early in the game will make yeah. the rest of the game so much easier. It took forever. I mean, that's why I was so over-leveled because all the characters had like 99 moves <laughs> on the sphere grid. Yeah. <laughs> you build up your sphere levels a lot. Yeah, in Beacon El Desert. So we shot this documentary together. Um, I got you to tell your story. And it was one of these things where once I finished it, it was like uh, I showed it to a few people that I knew and trusted from like my own uh, circle, like filmmaker people and stuff. And they watched it and they said, man, this is this is really, really cool and really interesting. Uh, I think you should enter this into some film festivals because it, it could really get like some interest because, um, you know, it was something that I didn't I had no budget for or anything like that. It was recorded with like, you know, minimal, minimal expense and that kind of stuff. I did it, um, you know, just just me and that kind of thing. So I didn't ha I didn't really have high hopes for it. But when people told me that the story was really interesting, I thought, why don't I give this a go? And basically, um, once we aired it on, like, I think it was, I'm trying to remember now, I aired it on YouTube and it was picked up by like a bunch of different like gaming blogs and like it was on like Lad Bible and that kind of stuff. It just went crazy. I don't know how well you remember like the first early days of when the, of when the documentary was aired. I remember very well because when it first went up on YouTube, the views started coming in thick and fast. Mm -hmm. um, and then it went on places like Lad Bible, even Kotaku yes. did an article about it. And I was like, oh my God, Kotaku are doing something about it. That is major. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the, I think, I think I remember sending it to them saying like, I've made this like documentary that I think would be interesting for your site. And they were nice enough to post it. And when they did, I think that the views went up by like 20 or 30,000 in one day. And it was it was pretty crazy on YouTube. And But for me, I think Facebook was the most interesting one. Like when I went on my Facebook and I saw it shared on places like, you know, Lad Bible and that kind of thing. It was like this chain reaction where I saw like a whole bunch of pages just sharing. It was like 500,000 views on one of them, a million on another, three million on another. It just, it was, it was crazy. It was really big. Yeah, and I think also the film festivals helped boost it a lot because obviously 
once it went to the film festivals, it started winning awards, didn't it? it yes, exactly. Um, I think it, it definitely it definitely gives the film a lot more credibility. I think when it comes to things like you know independent documentaries and that kind of thing. You know, just just saying documentary versus saying award-winning documentary is obviously going to attract more attention. And I think the the success that it had in a few little um, uh, film festivals, I think, definitely really helped it. And an interesting story uh, about that whole thing. I don't know, maybe Toby, you won't know this story either. But at one point, um, I think I'd I'd got selected into like one or two very very small uh, film festivals. And there was this other film festival that was a bit bigger. And as I understood it at the time, to, to be listed on a website like IMDb, for example, as like a, as a filmmaker, you needed like a, you know, you, you, your film needed some sort of credentials to be able to do it. And this film festival said that if you win a particular award, like if you win a category uh, in their award ceremony thing, then one of the, the perks of doing so is that you, your film gets an IMDb page. And I think for any filmmaker, it's a dream to be able to have your film appear on IMDb and for you to have your own profile and that kind of thing. So I remember entering it. And when I did, I remember it was selected, it was shortlisted to be like the like best documentary film of that particular month or year or whatever it was. And I, and I remember looking at the shortlist, it was like three or four other films. And these were like some incredible looking documentaries, like high budget looking, you know, done internationally and and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, there is no chance. Like, our little documentary, you know, shot in Kent with, like, you know, very basic minimal equipment about, like, video games. I thought, this thing doesn't stand a chance. And I remember thinking that... I, I kind of... I, I bet on... I, I placed, like, a, a little bet saying that if if this documentary ends up, you know, winning that award and getting itself listed on IMDb, I'm going to get myself a tattoo of Five Fantasy Ten Because it was like... It was just it was just another one of those wild, wacky Final Fantasy Ten stories where it's affected my life in some crazy positive way. And I was like, this would be too crazy a situation if it happens. And I thought it's unlikely anyway. So I thought if it does happen, I'll get a tattoo of Final Fantasy Ten. And literally like a few days later I got the email saying that my film had won. And I was like, Holy shit <laughs> Looks like I gotta get a tattoo now. So that's the story of why I have a Final Fantasy Ten tattoo as well. Oh really? I didn't know you had one. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's on my it's on my left forearm. I got it in like May 2017, so like five months after we made the documentary together. Yeah, well, May was the month when it pu- you published it, I believe. I think I think it was like March or April. I think I published it, and then within like a month or two, then the the film festival stuff started. And interestingly enough, that wasn't the the end of the story. Um, I think in that summer, the summer of 2017, I got I got an email from this um, like gaming network thing that had their own channel that they broadcast 24/7 and that kind of thing. And they said, "Oh, we've seen your documentary, and we'd we'd love to to air it on our on our channel. We want to purchase the rights to the documentary." And it was it was something that, again. That's every filmmaker's dream, you know. You make something. If you want to be a working filmmaker, you have to monetize. You have to sell what you're making otherwise you can't work in the industry and i remember just being blown away like are these guys legit who are they are they serious that kind of thing and then they said to me um the the content like the one that you've got on youtube right now is too short we need it to be at least 26 minutes long and so i was like well the only way i can do that is if i go back to toby 
And this time I want to interview his family as well to, to get their perspective on things. And so then in late 2017, we met a second time and we shot some more footage for the documentary. Yeah, and uh, I remember that day because uh, you interviewed my dad, I seem to remember, and you also interviewed James, who came over to help me with video games. And that is when I was playing Final Fantasy XII The Zodiac Age. And as part of the documentary, I fought Sarumus, the Condemner. Yes. And yeah, I remember that. Final Fantasy XII was, was... Watching you play Final Fantasy XII was really interesting as well. Well, it was funny because the night before you filmed, and that's why I kept the save, because I thought, right, I'm going to have another go at the rumour, see if I can beat it. And I actually did beat it. And at that point, I hadn't even finished the main story yet. Um, and I was so, like, levelled. I went back, I fought it, and I beat it. I was like, oh my god, I have just killed Sarumas. <laughs> Hell yeah. That was when I thought, well, this would be a good fight to show tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it really worked. You know, it really worked, didn't it? Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought that was really good, really good content. And I think watching you, one thing I didn't get to do um, in the first, the first time I came was that obviously, you know, when, when we chatted and when you told your story, it's clear that for most games, you need someone, you need a sighted person to help you with certain things. You can't play every game independently. It's just not something that's really possible. But obviously, the the day when we filmed the, the first kind of version of the documentary, there wasn't anyone there at the time that could kind of demonstrate how it works kind of thing. But the second time around, thanks to James, I don't know if you're still in touch with James. Shout out to James if he ever listens to this. I, I am, but I don't see him as much now due to what's been going on and also... Because mm-hmm. he's been really busy working and stuff, so sure. I don't be seeing that much anymore. James uh, is a guy who volunteers for a charity that helps out. Like, so he came, he comes over to to Toby's house and he helps him play games and that kind of thing. So seeing like you two kind of collaborate together and you know work on a game together was really interesting. So sometimes he'd like pick up the controller, he'd traverse like a certain area, he'd navigate something, he'd do something. And then once it was a stage where you could take over, he'd pass the controller back to you and then you'd do your thing. And if there was ever a time where you needed like a a clarification on something, he'd tell you what something was and that kind of thing. Just seeing that kind of collaborative process, I thought, I thought was really interesting and it really added something to the documentary as well. So the, the stuff like with Five Fantasy 12 and stuff, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I even played FF10 with him to get, try and get him in the FF10 bug. That unfortunately failed miserably. I mean, when it comes to to that sort of thing, it's always been a bit weird for me because obviously on YouTube, so many people know me. Literally at this stage, thousands of people know me through Final Fantasy X. You know, we have this shared interest of Final Fantasy X. I've gotten a lot of people into Final Fantasy X. When it comes to like my real day to day life, you know, I've never managed to successfully get anyone into Final Fantasy X ever. Like not not like some of my close friends or like my sister or my cousins or or anyone like that so it's always been a bit weird i've done my best but it's failed in real life so i decided to just kind of go digital and try and influence people digitally into getting into Final fantasy 10 and thankfully the the digital version i think i've done a pretty good job of it i would say you have yeah definitely because <laughs> you're as i say your wall crew i mean that's had thousands of views hasn't it 
Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, in terms of walkthroughs, obviously, it's the most successful series I've ever made, and it's one of those things I didn't know at the time it was going to be that big because the channel was way way smaller back then, and I'd never really done. I'd done a few commentary walkthroughs before of like, I think it was Metal Gear Solid and stuff that I'd done and maybe a few other little things, a little bit of Uncharted or something like that. But it was, I really, I mean, those kind of videos were like a few hundred views each or something like that, maybe a few thousand tops. And so I thought, you know, okay, you know, this is going to be a fun walkthrough one I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. But honestly, like the fact that it was going to end up blowing up like this and getting so much, so many views and so much amazing feedback and you know, so many people end up subscribing as a result. People became like patrons as a result. I don't know. It just it turns it turned into this crazy like thing that I never thought would would happen. But obviously, I'm very very glad it did. It got me to to where I am today. So hugely grateful as always. And I'm grateful too because if it hadn't been for that and all the things that happened leading up to this, we wouldn't have met, would we, mate? You know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. What did you think of Final Fantasy IX, by the way? I don't think we spoke a lot about Final Fantasy IX. I really enjoyed it, actually. I thought it was a really good game. Um, it's it's really charming. It really is. I loved the story. I loved the music. Um, I enjoyed eight. I enjoyed eight as well, though. Okay, that's good to hear because I, I I love eight. I think eight's brilliant as well. The only one I haven't watched yet, but I'm wondering whether to watch it or not, is seven. Okay, yeah. I mean, the seven ended up actually being one of my. It's it's tied probably tied with eight as as being like my second favorite Final Fantasy of all time. I really love seven as well, and I think it's definitely one that that's worth watching and checking out. For me, like seven seven was was great because it it, it was great at doing. It could do it all. It had like a, it had a good story. It had good characters. It had good gameplay. It had good bosses. It had good post game. It had good. Um, I don't know, the locations were cool, the soundtrack was great. So it was one that's like really balanced, all-round great Final Fantasy, I think. There's one thing I was really hoping you were going to do on Final Fantasy IX because I've heard so many people talk about it, but obviously I know you didn't do it at the time, but that was Fightly's ultimate super boss uh, in the game. <laughs> yeah, Ozma. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean, there's been a few people that that's talked to me about Ozma and... I'd love to fight it. I mean, you you know me and people listening in know me. I love to fight a super boss. But for me, it was like the, the requirements needed to fight it. They just seemed too boring. And once I, I don't know the strategy of the super boss, but I've heard that it's one of these bosses that is really cheap and beating it is a little bit cheap as well kind of thing. So I don't know. I was never too excited by it, but maybe someday if I'm willing to put in the legwork to, to fight it, I might I might do it. I don't know. Did you do seven super bosses? Yeah, yeah, I've got um, I've got like the entire playlist for seven. I've I've done all of like the the post game stuff too. So there's a there's a lot to see for seven. Yeah, sorry to hurt your feelings, but unfortunately, I will not be watching your playthrough of seven remake because there's a YouTube channel who's doing an audio described. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember that. You sent me a link to that, and I thought that was amazing. Like that, whoever whoever came up with like the idea of that, I think it's a wonderful service to to blind gamers. Well, I'm actually in touch with this guy. Okay. Um, and he's also done part one of FF12 as well. Okay. Um, but the games he's thinking about doing now, which I really hope he does, is The Last of Us 1 and 2. 
That's that's interesting. So I mean, um, once we're done talking, I'll I'll find his channel again and I'll link it in the description for people as well. But in case people aren't aware of what it is, because I mean, for me, I've come to understand these terms much better now that I've spent time with you and you know learn about it and stuff. So like you know accessibility, audio description, that kind of thing. But what what is audio description like? How does how does it help you? Basically, in terms of films or TV or whatever, it basically someone. It's like a pre-recorded thing or, well, unless you go to the theatre, then it's live mm-hmm. and it's someone basically in the non-talking part describes what's going on in the movie or something. So if there's a load of action, it will tell you what's going on or, or if someone's kissing someone or something, you know, simple as that, it will tell you that. And it's really good because it gives you an understanding of what's happening in a program or film or yeah because i mean it's again it's another thing that people you know people who are you know are fortunate enough to to be sighted it's just not something that you ever think of it just seems so basic but again for for me it was like well you know if you if you've got all of the audio for like a, a game or like a, a movie or something surely you could still understand it and that kind of thing but so many things happen that that don't have audio triggers or like you know you're not going to be able to pick up on it if you only have audio to go on. So the fact that it's audio described, it, I think it does make a huge difference, and it's really good that that this channel's done it. I mean, it. I listened to like a portion of it, and it seems like it's such hard work. And the fact that they're they're willing to put in the time because this is this is a service, you know. It's like it's you know it's in the service of people that can really benefit from this kind of thing. So a huge shout out to that channel, and I'll link them in the description because I think they're doing some great work. His name's um well his channel name is Gorilla's Playthrough. Okay. He is he's known as Clueless Gorilla, and me and him have actually been in touch quite frequently. Okay. Um, in fact, he he I sent him the documentary, and he found it really inspirational. Mm, that's nice. That's cool. I, I'll try and I'll try and hit him up as well. He seems like a he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll certainly sort of tell you more about him after we're done with this. But yeah, okay, cool. Another another person I want to draw a little bit of attention to, and someone that um, I don't that they didn't feature by name in the documentary, but someone that I think people should know about, and I've tweeted a few times, is you're a fan of Doom, which you mentioned before. You, you used to play the Doom games. You don't play as much anymore, but you used to play a lot of Doom, right? Yeah, and I used to play a lot of like the the, the levels that people created as well and then you told me about uh, this guy who makes mods for doom which enables uh, people that have visual impairments to actually play through the game as well yeah um i got in touch with him because i played one of his mods called the doom tribute project and it had some really amazing levels in it i really enjoyed it um i said i do use cheats on Doom, but you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't really care. But um, and then he, he saw the documentary yet again. It stems back to the documentary, mm-hmm. and because of seeing that documentary, he wanted to make a Doom mod that was fully accessible for someone who's either totally blind or has a visual impairment. Yeah. So his um, his YouTube username, I think, is Mr. Allen D One, if I remember it correctly. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll link him in the description as well. And again, shout out to him as well, because he, he put in a lot of work to, to make this mod. It allows people like Toby to enjoy Doom in like a way they wouldn't have been able to before. So I thought that was really cool. 
it was cool and I really appreciate everything he's done because it really works. It really does. I mean, so when it comes to like accessibility in video games, what is like, we're going to get to The Last of Us 2 in a second anyway, but like, let's just say before The Last of Us 2 ever came out, what would you say was like the, the general state of accessibility like in gaming? Pretty poor, to be honest. It was poor. To be honest, half the games had none. Um, the first game that made an attempt at this was Mortal Kombat 11 with audio talking menus, mm-hmm. even though half the menus didn't actually talk. It was only like the main menus where they were actually spoken. Mm-hmm. But I will give the Injustice games credit because they did have sort of audio cues when you were in the arenas and stuff. But I didn't actually notice them at the time, but they did have audio cues. Yeah, that that's one that came up when we were doing the documentary because we were talking about, so, you know, what kind of things are available at the moment. And I remember you talking about in- Injustice and I remember recording the audio cues myself to add into the documentaries, like background footage when we were talking about it. I thought that was a nice little touch. It was, yeah. It really helped, actually. Um, but as I say, you know, games up till now have not had any form of accessibility at all. I mean, I've always thought that was a bit... That always frustrated me a little bit because um, I think that, like, you know, gaming is, a, is relative to, let's say, something like film is a much, much more modern medium and it's a much more technology-reliant medium. So I used to always think, well, I mean, gaming is supposed to kind of be following technology and be a, like the forefront of technology. And if technology enables us to, to make things more accessible, then why is it that games are lacking on this front? So like, let's say something like audio description, which, you know, in movies and TV channels and that kind of thing, you can there, there's a lot of options available for it. But has there ever been an audio-described game other than The Last of Us 2? Like, if you take that out of the equation, had you played one like that before? No. I mean, even The Last of Us 2, the only thing it doesn't have is audio description in the cutscenes. Ah, okay. Right. But other other than that, like, games have never had any form of audio navigation or anything like that. Well, I mean... I have played audio games before on my computer mm-hmm. made totally by blind developers like Manamon, Manamon 2, Heroes Call. Um, and it's funny you, about when I say about a Heroes Call because I know you, I think, donated to the quick Kickstarter for that game. Yes, I did. Yeah, Heroes Call. Yeah. How did it turn out in the end? I mean, I, I didn't play it myself, but did you end up enjoying well, it? Well, all I can say is it's probably the best audio game out there. Really? Okay, that's good to hear. Um, there's no graphics, so it's totally audio, but the way the sound is used is amazing. I mean, for it's 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 wonderful that that people have managed to make these kind of games, but again, it frustrates me because at the end of the day, like the fact that because there's not because the accessibility situation in games is not too great, you basically people are being forced to make their own games for blind people so they they can experience some kind of story without or like have a gaming experience without needing some kind of assistance so you've either got that or you've got these like individuals like let's say mr allen d1 who's willing to to put in time to to modern existing game to make it more accessible so it's a shame that at the moment like the current state is having to rely on modders and having to rely on like kickstarters and stuff in order to create games that you know blind people will be able to experience. Well, another audio game that I played, uh, 
was a really good game called Bokorano the Balkan Free. And it's made by a blind Japanese developer. Hmm. And uh, the Japanese audio games, I can honestly say, are top-notch. Nice. I mean, that's another thing we could do. Um, once this is done, you can give me a list of some of your favourite um, audio games and I can add them in the description as well in case anyone needs to, to access them because I'm sure there's going to be some uh, some blind gamers tuning into this as well that might not have heard of those games. Yeah. So when it comes to like video games that have come out and that you've maybe you've watched someone else play or you've tried to play with an assisted, you know, you've tried to play assisted with a friend or something, what are the games where you really, really wish that it was made accessible so that you could play it unassisted? Well, <laughs> Final Fantasy X is a given. Okay, well, you know, that's that's obvious. But other than Final Fantasy X, what are the games where you know that it exists, but there's absolutely no way for you to play it and you really wish that you could? Last of Us Part 1. Yep, that's a, that's a good one, yeah. I watched your play for, your Survivor play for again uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, oh my god, this game's so good. The Last of Us one is is really, really special for sure. Just want to interrupt here to mention that if you do not want to experience any spoilers for The Last of Us two, you will have to stop listening at this point. Yeah, and I think <laughs> no, I ain't going to say that because it's too controversial. I was going to say, but for me, like, but I think the second one is as special as the first one. I know that's very controversial, but. That's how I feel. I mean, of course, you know, it's it's it it depends on perspective, and I think for you, because The Last of Us Two has done so much for accessibility, I think it definitely it, it has like a huge a huge positive factor that the first game just doesn't have, and it's so hard to compare it in that sense. So yeah, I think this is a natural time to transition into The Last of Us Two, and like I said, as soon as I I think I saw on Twitter that they shared like a. Sony, I think, shared a post about like all of the accessibility features that they've got in The Last of Us 2. And I immediately thought of you and I was like, I hope that this means that Toby will get to play through this game. So when it comes to The Last of Us 2, tell me about the game and the accessibility features. What was in it that allowed you to play it? How did it work? Well, the game has uh, three different presets for accessibility with over 60 different accessibility settings. So it has one for blind and vision impaired, one for people who are deaf, mm-hmm. one for people with motor skill, like motor issues, like cerebral palsy and stuff. Okay. Um, so obviously I used the blind and vision impaired preset. So in that preset, um, obviously the game has text-to-speech built in, uh, which one thing I've, I must I forgot to cover actually. One thing that really annoys me is that PlayStation Four in the US has a built-in screen reader, whereas in the UK and Europe they don't have that. Oh wow! I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Why? I don't know. That's strange. So would that mean that technically, if you imported if you imported a, a US PS4, you'd have access to it? I don't know how it works, but if I had a PS4 from the US. I'm not. I'm just. I'm just wondering if it's a, a hardware thing or if it's like if you set up a US PSN account, it's it's to do with like you know what region your PSN account is linked to or something. I really don't know. I don't know how it works, but apparently wow. the screen apparently the screen reader is really good. Okay, that's to interesting. Some of my blind mates who have PS4. 
Yeah, because screen reading was something that um, that I noticed when we were doing the documentary. Because obviously, you know, you're you're able to use a computer and stuff like independently, and the, the screen reading stuff is just so essential for you to to navigate stuff and for you to understand stuff. That having it on a PS4 would obviously make a huge difference to to gamers. Oh yeah, and that's what the come back to Last of Us Part Two. Yeah, that is one of the things that Naughty Dog implemented. Mm-hmm. which I'm really happy about because it meant that I could read all the menus, uh, all the notes. Like, what do you call those like artifacts that you pick up? Are they notes? Or? I, th- I think so. I think they're called notes. Uh, it reads all them. Mm-hmm. Reads, I, if you pick up items, it reads out what they are. Um, it reads everything. Everything. Yeah, that was really useful. I watched, um, I watched a, li- a little bit of you play. I'm going to come to that bit in, a little bit later too, but I watched... Um, I watched you play the game a bit and the, the screaming stuff is really interesting. So I noticed, let's say you pick up something off the ground and it tells you that like, you picked up half of a rag. Mm. So you know that like, oh, I need another half in order to be able to craft something, etc. So I thought that was really cool. Exactly, yeah. Um, but that's not all they've put in. They've put in more than that. Um, so they've put in audio cues for navigation and traversal. Mm-hmm. So in order to... Oh, where to start? There's so much. Um, so in order to navigate the story, um, you press the left analog, left analog stick or L3, mm-hmm. as the game calls it. And then what it does, it turns the camera to face like the center. Okay. So then when you walk straight, it then does like, another audio cube, which is like a waypoint, as it were. Okay. So then you press the left stick again and it you continue on like that and then when you reach an objective it does another audio cue to show that you've reached an objective. Mm-hmm. But then there's an audio cue to tell you when a cutscene begins. There's an audio cue to tell you when a cutscene ends. There's skip puzzle option which basically allows you to skip a puzzle if it's not accessible. Ah, okay. However, however, me and my mate have discovered that every puzzle in the game is accessible. Really? Okay. So my mind goes to when you said puzzles, the first one that my mind went to is there's a there's a generator bit where you have to like throw like a, a an electric cable over like a fence or something. And I was thinking how would you be able to do that? Do you remember that bit? Yeah, I, I actually solved that puzzle. Um, okay. There's an audio cue to tell you when to throw. Ah, uh, okay. In the game, there's an audio cue glossary. And in that glossary, there's like 80 audio cues. I was going to say, because uh, you're, you're talking about these audio cues. And again, it, it, it comes back to memories. Like how d- was it really difficult to, to know which audio cue was which? Like How long did it take for you to adjust to all of these audio cues and stuff? It took me a while, but the game's very good. And at the start, it tells you this audio cue means what, like jump or mm-hmm. this audio cue means squeeze through or this audio cue means this, you know? So it, every audio cue, but then if you go into the glossary, it also does that. And it says triangle button for like mm. opening a door or something like that. Okay. But I mean, so when it's all said and done with these sort of features, you were able to complete the game from start to finish without having anyone helping you, right? At first, there was a few sections I have to admit I did have to have sighted support with. Okay. Uh, 
like some of the really hard running sections. Yeah, uh, okay. Like the one in the subway tunnel after the TV station. Yes, I remember. I hated that part. But <laughs> yeah, that was that was fast and furious. That it sounds like that would have been very difficult. However, when I did my YouTube playthrough, I bought a gaming headset from when I did my YouTube playthrough. Okay. I actually managed to do that part completely on my own. Nice. Uh, I basically on this playthrough. I've done the whole game on my own except for one part. Mm-hmm. And that is the part where you have to start by running away from the Rat King. Uh, okay, I think I yeah, I think I know what bit you're talking about. Yes. After the ambulance. Yes, okay, I got you. It feels funny talking to you about a mainstream video game like this, you know, like Yeah. I could imagine, yeah. I mean it, it, I was I was so happy that the fact that you got to experience this game in that way. I mean, that's why no matter what you know I, I made of the story or whatever, all that kind of stuff. It's just I got I got a massive respect for for the time and effort that they put in to make this game accessible. I thought I thought well, that was just amazing. Say that I think it would be cool on your channel, but you don't have to agree with me on this. But but you should do another playthrough, <laughs> but using. Not using your sight, but using all the audio cue features, see how you get on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might just do like one session like that, just as like a, a an experiment kind of thing. Or don't even record, or you don't even have to record it, just yeah. try it yourself. Try fighting the Rat King on your own, see how you get on. Yeah, I feel like it's impossible, man. I was watching you play, and I think, I think for me it was like the, the audio cues, like, I just, because I'm not used to, to needing them in that way. I was just like watching it and listening to it, thinking like I closed my eyes a few times while I was watching, and I was like, I would have no idea what the hell is going on right now. Like it seems, it seems so difficult in, in that sense. It's just a whole different challenge. But you somehow manage to still navigate things. You're like shooting people, and you know what's coming. You pick things up. You craft things. Uh, I mean, that's another cool feature. It's got uh, auto lock on slash. Aim, so when you aim, yep. with L, you hold L, I don't know if you have to do this as well, but you hold, do you hold, as a sighted person, do you hold L2 to aim or not? I How does aiming work for you? I think so, yeah. I mean, I definitely hold something down to aim. I think it's L2. Yeah, well, I hold L2 to aim. So I hold L2 to aim. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, pit, a, a pitch for the body. Yep. And then if you move the stick up, it's a higher pitch, which is the head. Yes. And then if you move it down, it's a lower pitch for the legs. You see, I, ca- so- I, ca- I caught that while you were playing, and I thought that was really interesting because obviously I think one element of, of the accessibility stuff is you still want to make the player feel like they're doing something. So I guess let's just say I was making a game and I wanted to make it accessible. I could just say, oh, well, because these guys don't have sight, I should just make it lock onto a headshot every single time so that they never, ever miss and it's always a headshot. But the way they've done it is that I think initially it aims at the body and the player still has to move the analog stick in order to, to make it into a headshot, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, thought yeah. That, I thought that was really good. Like, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, the game has done some really stupid things, though, at certain points. I'll go into that more in a sec. But 
The game has had a very annoying habit a few times of just chucking me out the window and killing me for no apparent reason. Oh, that's weird. I, I didn't catch that in the bits that I watched, but yeah, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> I mean, I think that I, I was going to say that one thing I did notice about that was that sometimes um, the game it treats everything as like a, a super straight line when you're trying to navigate. So let's say the game says you need to go forwards, but there's a car in front of you. Instead of the game kind of walking around the car, it will literally just jump up onto the car or the truck or whatever it is and just go straight over it, which I thought was yeah. a little bit... Like, I don't know if there was any other way to program it, but it did seem a little bit weird to just see you like randomly climbing on top of trucks and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I take it you didn't have to do that then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, well, I mean, the idea is that in a lot of the sections, you're trying to be a bit more stealthy. You're trying to hide behind things. And obviously, jumping up onto a truck and being like, hey, guys, you know, can you see me? Is, is a little bit odd. But I mean, I guess, you know, nothing's perfect. And it still it still was good enough for, for you to complete the story. Well, here's another cool feature. Um, I don't know how it works for you sighted players, but uh, there's the whole thing of going prone. Yes. Now, mm -hmm. well, as part of the accessibility, when you go prone, you go invisible. Okay, right. Is that the same for you? Um, I wouldn't say invisible. I mean, watching you, I mean, one thing that became clear was that I think in accessibility mode, obviously, they're more lenient with how close you can be to an enemy before they realize that oh, you're no, there. Oh, no, they're not. No, they're not. Well, I noticed certain bits where you were, you were like you know, you were like a meter away from them and they didn't know you were there. Yeah, because I was invisible. That's what I'm saying. So I think in, in the versions, like in the sighted version, I think at that stage you would have been seen. You won't be invisible there. So I think they kind of, they take it up an extra notch mm. to, to give players that extra safety net to, to allow them to play through. Otherwise it would just be too chaotic, I think. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you start aiming, you're not invisible anymore. Yeah. What if you jump or something, you're not invisible anymore. Seeing seeing like the gunfights breakout was really interesting. There was a section where you grab someone and it was really cool because you deliberately grabbed them and you didn't kill them. You used them as a shield and then you were literally just like aiming and <laughs> and picking off all of these enemies. It was just so cool to watch. I thought it was really, I thought it was really yeah. interesting. <laughs> I, I love doing that and I love, I love the trap mines. Yeah, the, yeah, you like using those as well. Yeah, they're fun. They're fun. I just love putting them down and then like, I just love the people's reactions. It's like, especially when you kill the dogs and they're like, oh my God, my dog's dead. You know, it's just. <laughs> it's, yeah, in that sense, they, they try to really up the, up the kind of that emotional value of, of, of killing an enemy by like trying to make it seem like, hey, you know, this, this was someone's pet dog or this was someone's best friend and you killed them, you mean person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I killed Biona the other day, and this is honest truth. The dog just stood there crying. It didn't even come after me. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun. I did that once or twice myself in my own playthrough. Basically, uh, I did this thing where, um, obviously, you don't have to do that, but I did it just more of as more as like a self-imposed sort of bit of banter slash challenge. I basically went through the entire game without killing any dogs, other than the one that Ellie is scripted to kill in the story. So I never killed any of the dogs in the areas, and what I why not? Yeah, just because I love dogs, and I just thought it'd be like I, they just they, they seem so innocent that I felt bad killing them, and I was like, I'm going to let them live. And yeah, but they're a pain. Yes, they are, and that's why, like I said, it was it was more of a like a self-imposed like little challenge kind of thing. They're dangerous, seriously. They're dangerous. 
Yeah. And what I did uh, once or twice was basically I was kind of, I would like, let's say, go prone in the grass and I would, I'd use a bow and arrow to silently take out like the owner, like whoever's on the end of the leash. And the dogs would just be like confused, like what the hell just happened? Like my my owner just disappeared, and they'd just be kind of standing around, like not knowing what to do. So I thought it was quite funny. Did you ever use the explosive arrows? I did not, not a huge amount. You, you get them fairly late, like you don't get them too early in the game. I did use them a few times because I tend to try and play more stealthy. Obviously, explosive arrows was like you know you cause a scene when you use one, so I, I tended to not use it. I'll tell you what, though, they're good against shamblers. Yes, they're, they're definitely useful. Shamblers, I thought they were fun. Like they were, they were a nice, say, design kind of thing. But I think on the normal difficulty, they they died a bit too easily for my liking, personally. Yeah, but that's better though, because they hit hard. They do. When they do hit, they definitely hit hard. One thing actually that I was thinking when I was watching was, The Last of Us Two is is quite a scary game. Like relative to the first one, it seems to have a lot more horror elements. I it, I feel like as a as a blind person that has to focus in so heavily on the sound. Like, do you really get scared? Like, is, is the, are the jump scares more, like, hardcore for you? Or, or do you not get scared that much when you're playing? Not really, but I don't know if you agree with this as a sighted person, but you constantly have to think on your feet because you don't know what's going to happen at a particular point. So Yeah, so the, the, bit that, the bit in particular that I'm thinking about is the section with the stalkers when you're playing as Ellie. I don't know if you remember that. There was a, like an indoor bit where there's stalkers. Do you remember that? Oh, God. Yeah. Like that, that to me was like, that was like horror stuff because I'm kind of, because they're constantly kind of scuttling around and you don't always know exactly where they are. Like you, one of them could literally, you could be hiding around a corner thinking you're safe and then one of them will just pop up from behind you and attack you. And that could be quite... Oh, I've had that. Oh, I've had that happen many times. Many exactly, times. and I'm like that. That's quite scary. And I was thinking, if my eyes were closed while I was playing this, and I only had the sound to go, and I'd shit myself. So I thought, like, it sounds it sounds scary to me, like even scarier. A word of warning: if you play on New Game Plus, on like Light Plus or Moderate Plus, right? There's about ten stalkers in that room. Yeah, I mean, even on normal mode, it was it was quite challenging. I remember trying to use things like trap mines to to cover. Like my back, let's say, if I go into a room, I'd place a trap mine in the room behind me, so that if they tried to run around behind me, they'd get blown up by the trap mine. Do you know what strategy I I started using, and it really worked actually. You know, if you killed someone like a WLF person or something like that, yeah. As soon as you kill them, I liked to place a trap mine because you would know that if someone died, they would go and investigate. Ah, uh, so, that's a good. That's a good point. So I deliberately placed a trap mine where I killed someone, mm-hmm. ran away, so that then when they go to investigate, they get blown up. That's 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 a good one actually. That's quite smart. I've, I, that's not something that I use, but it does make a lot of sense when you mention it. I was about strategy the whole way. I really was about strategy. Uh, you know, trying to work out the best way of dealing with things. And so now that we're talking about that stuff, there was one particular part of the game that I know you struggled with a lot. So how did you deal with the Rat King? Oh, God. (laughs) The first time I played it, I got stuck on that thing for three days. Wow. Three days. (laughs) Because one thing you didn't show, I wish you'd shown me your walkthrough. I wish you'd shown the fact that it can instantly kill you if it grabs you. 
I wish you'd shown that off to people to show how hard that boss is. In that sense, it's just it's a difficult one for sure. Yeah, uh, as I say, I got stuck on it for three days and my blind friend basically had to do an urgent live stream to show me how to beat it. Ah, right. I mean, one thing I was thinking was that in accessibility mode, I, I wondered if maybe they could have put in, let's say, something like a, a skip encounter sort of thing. So let's say someone in your position. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't have liked that. No, I'm just saying, let's just say as an option, you know, let's just say something's happening. Maybe not skip encounter, but just something that if you re- if it's literally taking you days to defeat one boss, just something even like a cheat, let's say, that can that can get you through it so that you can progress the story, so that you're not completely stuck. Well, I'm not the only one who's stuck on that Rat King. Every a lot of blind people who are playing this game, yeah, who have never played a game of this scale before, exactly, are really getting stuck on the Rat King because of because that's another one where you, it sort of comes without warning. So is is the reason why it's so difficult? Because even with the audio cues, there's not enough time to react. What makes it so difficult? Well, the audio cues are fine, but it's just the fact that. You have to do everything quick and mm. it moves quick. Yeah. And that grab is that instant kill grab is basically undodgeable. Yes. You cannot dodge that grab. So as soon as you get caught in that grab, you're knackered. Yeah. I think I think a, an added problem was that not only is it quicker than it looks, it's like this big kind of lumpy giant boss, but it, it does move pretty quick. And the the area that you're in is is really like quite compact. There isn't a lot of space to move. So the odds of you like getting stuck on a like, you know, bumping into something or like getting stuck inside a little room or something like that, it seems like it was quite hard. So Well what I try and do, I mean, I didn't even have to do it the other day, but there's a crack in the wall. Yeah. So what I try and do, I throw a pipe bomb or two at it. And then I try and run through this crack in the wall. Yeah. And then I turn on slow motion aim ah. and start firing at it with the flamethrower. Okay, slow motion aim. That's interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's another accessibility feature. Okay, I mean, that that's a, that's a nice feature. I was going to say, like, for, for battles that are much more fast-paced, that does sound very helpful. Uh, kind of, but then when you're dealing with the Rat King, sometimes yeah. it can actually work not in your favour because... The stupid thing can still kill you. <laughs> I see. But I mean, you made it through in the end, and I, I think you must have felt extremely satisfied when you beat it. I can honestly say, what a boss fight. I, I think it's a really good boss fight. Uh, you know, it's what, I don't know what you feel, but it's what the game needed at that point, if you know what I mean. Like, it needed yeah. a big battle. Like, yeah, I, I agree with you, because when I was playing through, um, I think narratively it needed it as well because when you got to that hospital area and you got down to like the, the lower floors, they the game told you that this was like ground zero, this is where the infection broke out, this is where everything started. So my reaction when I was when I was playing it was that okay, I guess the 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 infected down here are gonna be some of the oldest, most messed up infected on the planet. So I'm expecting to find some messed up stuff down here. And so the Rat King, I think being there was, was, you know, it was fitting and it was a good idea. It's a great boss fight. Don't get me wrong. Do you know, um, do you know how long your save file was or how long it took you to complete? I don't know. There's no way to find out. 
Okay, yeah, because I remember it's, it says like on the save file itself, but obviously that wouldn't be, you'd have to get someone to read it out and tell you how long the file was. But I was just curious if there was some way you could have known. I think the first playthrough I ever did, I think I did it in like 68 hours. Okay, right. That's the kind of number that I was curious about. I mean, it took me about 30, but obviously watching watching you and obviously the you know the accessibility features and all that kind of stuff, of course it's going to take longer than a normal playthrough would. I have one major gripe with the game, though. Okay. And it, it goes back to Seattle Day 1 with Ellie. Okay. Uh, basically, that part where you're got the map and there's loads of different places to explore. Yes, okay. The map isn't accessible. Ah, see, that's one thing I was going to ask you because, I mean, I was watching the sort of the L3 mechanic work and I was thinking, okay, that's cool, but how would that have worked in, let's say, the the Seattle kind of more open section? And I guess, what does it do then? Like, how does the game direct you? Does it just direct you to the storyline bit? So you miss out on all of the other optional buildings that you could have gone into? How does it work? That is pretty much how it works, unfortunately. Okay, so the game has to focus on, like, okay, the story wants you to go here, and so we're, we're, we're just going to have to direct you there because, you know, that that's the only way that we can progress the story, I guess. Yeah, because there's a safe that I really want to get. I'm trying to get this trophy ah. for unlocking all safes. Right, okay. And there's a safe that I really don't know how to access. Mm-hmm. And it's the one Westgate 2 with the combo 0451. Okay. Yeah, I think I remember which one you're talking about, but yeah. I wish, if I knew where it was or how to access it, I'd really like to get my hands on it because I'd actually what's in it, for starters. It's, that, that's, I guess, like one of the things, again, it, it, it's not going to be perfect, and I guess that's one area in which... Well, I'm thinking about doing it, I mean... I'm thinking about not recording it, but I'm thinking about doing a playthrough on a harder difficulty. Because I thought I'm ready to do a playthrough now on a harder difficulty. So we've been talking a little bit about um, YouTube in general. So I think it was like a few months ago, right? You created your own YouTube channel called the Audio Game Club. I did, yeah. Um, and I started off by uploading mainly audio games. So I've done like BK2, Chaos... BK1, Manamon 2, which I have a lot of respect for that playthrough because I really enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Heroes Call as well. Um, but then obviously I didn't want to miss the chance doing a playthrough of TOU 2, The Last of Us 2. Of course. But what by doing that playthrough, it's really boosted and joining groups on Facebook and telling people about the fact that this game is fully accessible and promoting my my videos of the game, my subscriptions have gone up to two hundred and eight. Yeah, I mean that that for for like a new YouTuber, I think that's a, that's a really good start. It's been really cool to to see the numbers starting to go up. I think it's a, it's a good job. Yeah, I'm really enjoying doing it. I, I've run out of things to record now. I don't know what to record now. <laughs> now I've finished Last of Us. I don't know what. I literally have no idea what to record. Hmm. Like at all. Yeah, I mean, I think if you can, it would be cool if you'd maybe figure out, like, do a little bit of, like, Final Fantasy twelve stuff, maybe. So, well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about maybe doing trial mode on FF12 the Zodiac Age. Okay, I mean, that I think that could be really fun. I mean, Final Fantasy is the type of game that I've not really ever heard of or really seen many people play. 
um, that are blind. So I think that could be a really interesting situation. Yeah, well, I don't know if you remember trial mode, but it's quite fun, isn't it? Trial mode is trial mode is great. It's one of the best kind of post-game optional dungeon things that I played in Final Fantasy. I think it's great. Plus the fact that I have weapons like the sight and brat bow and stuff like that. Okay, so it sounds like you're you're well equipped for it. Uh, yeah, and I'm level ninety nine in all my characters as well. Yeah, there you go. You definitely sound like you're ready to to give it a run. Yeah, and those judges are no joke. Oh my god! Yeah, the the judges are the the most difficult boss battle I think I've I've done in Final Fantasy. I would say easy way to beat them though. Use the rumors. I'm trying to remember now. I think I think I summoned Zodiac or something. Like I, I remember figuring out that a summon, like you could get an early summon in to take one of them out or something like that. I remember trying to trying to figure that out. Because that it? that fight is hard because everything you try and do. They would just counter it. Yes, exactly. That's why it was so difficult. Just because, I mean, it's very rare in like a, a super boss battle where you're literally outnumbered. That that almost never happens in five. It's usually like one big boss or they might have like two arms, like pennants, let's say. But it's very rare that you're actually completely outnumbered by the bosses that you have to fight. So I thought that was quite interesting. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. Because it's basically, what is it? Five on three, I think. Yeah, I think so. I'd love to know what the story behind pennants is. Um, uh, good question. I, I personally, I, I don't really think there is a story behind penance. It's just, it's just something that they added to, to you know, give give people an extra challenge. I think, and they tried to loosely weave it into like this, like Yevon story of like Yevonites and stuff. But there's just so little story or any reference to it, really. That to me, it's not. It's a shame though, because I think that would have been quite interesting. I think so. Yeah, I definitely would have wished that there was a little bit more about it, but. I mean, I think in terms of your channel, that'd be cool to see. I mean, trial mode, because it doesn't have any navigation stuff, you can literally rattle through it. So I think that could be fun to upload. Certain specific boss battles in Final Fantasy X maybe could be interesting too. So the only thing is, I don't have many, I don't have many, many boss battle saves because I stupidly didn't keep many of them. I'm gutted. Ah, I see. So I, I, my stats are not quite there, but I'd love to do the penance battle on my channel but my stats are not quite high enough right I see and I'd need a bit of help with that so okay so one thing I was um, like have you ever thought about I've, I've seen a few people like on Twitter and stuff getting into like this sort of consulting type stuff for, for accessibility and like digital media sort of thing have you ever tried to find sort of work in that sort of field anything like that I think you'd be quite good at it I haven't, no, not really, no. Um, I mean, the only thing I have done is after I played Last of Us, I contacted Neil Druckmann okay. to say that, you know, I want to thank you and Naughty Dog personally for everything you've done to make this game accessible. Neil Druckmann has never replied to me once. However, the guy who did reply to me was... This guy, Matthew Gallen, I think his name is. Okay. He was the lead designer of the accessibility for The Last of Us Part 2. That's pretty epic. Going back to the documentary, James Arnold Taylor actually got back to me about the documentary. Yeah, uh, that's that's also, that's one thing that I think he's, he's definitely really great about those kind of things. I remember 
Um, I, I think I tweeted it at him, I think at the time, and he was kind enough to, to retweet it and like comment on it and that kind of stuff. That was really nice. And, um, again, like another little story about that thing. Um, in, I think 2018, uh, there was a, there was a Comic Con in London that James Arnold Taylor was, uh, attending. And I wanted to go there to meet him, like, you know, get his autograph and just like, you know, say hi and that kind of thing. And I went there. And when he was like, I, I brought my like copy of Final Fantasy X with me. And while he was signing it, I said, um, by the way, like I was the guy who made uh, the, this documentary about like the, the blind gamer and that kind of stuff. And he remembered it. And he said, oh, like, are you the, the director of that kind of thing? And we had a little chat about it. So he still remembers it, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was really cool as well. Really? That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I thought that was really nice, but I, I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to try and get him on a Dan's Great podcast someday. But he's a he's a difficult man to get hold of. But hopefully, I try and make it happen eventually. He sounds funny to say, but he sounds so like Titus when he talks. Yeah, his his natural voice. It's funny because he's he's one of these like I call them. I don't know if it's an industry industry term. It probably isn't, but I call him a chameleon voice actor where. He can literally do like a hundred different voices and most of them you would have no idea it was him. But one of his most iconic voices, Tidus, it sounds very, very similar to his just his normal talking voice, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is something you want to talk about, but I've cried in many video games as well like over, the, over the time, especially FF10, the ending of that. And in The Last of Us 2, the ending of that game really affected me to the point where even thinking about it made me cry. I can, I can imagine. I mean, the, the last of us two was incredibly intense. Like a, a lot of really, really intense and, and like heavy hitting things happened in that game for sure. Um, and I went to bed crying that night. The first time I finished it, I went to bed crying. Wow. That night. Cause I was just felt so sorry for Ellie that she'd lost everything yeah i mean it was a horrible it was a horrible end for her in that sense where like she that that's that was one of the the most difficult things to take about that story because to me it was like you know she had the whole situation where she looked like she had some sort of happy ending with dina and uh and the kid and all that stuff and i was like okay oh uh, i loved do you know what those scenes were really cute on that farm they were really good yeah and then after all of that for her to to still say, you know what, uh, you know my desire. For- I don't know if I'm allowed to say spoilers on this podcast, but I personally thought Tommy was completely out of order doing what he did. <laughs> yeah, coming to yeah, you know, coming to that farm and doing what he did, and I actually, oh god, no, I ain't going to say this because it's really controversial. But I also had a lot of respect for Abby as well. I think Abby was as a character. She she was fine. It was a, like I didn't have a huge like oh, you know, I, I hate her with a passion for the entire game kind of thing. Like she was fine. But for me, there were there were there were bigger there were bigger issues that, than just like Abby as a character. Let's say I think there were, like like the Tommy situation. I think was was for me that it epitomized what I didn't like about the game story. Like what happened with him and the way he kind of returned to the farm and. Like we thought he was dead. Like, um, it's it's an interesting thing. Hey, what? Why did he get shot then? Yeah, he get he gets shot in in the scene with. Oh, see, I didn't see, I didn't know that. Yeah, see, that's one thing I was going to tell you. Uh, in the scene with Abby and Ellie, uh, when they're facing off with each other, Abby says, "You know, you killed my friends." 
all that kind of stuff. Tommy, basically, he's already on the ground. He gets shot by uh, Lev's bow and arrow. So he's on the ground. And Rich, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, because there's no audio description. So this is an example of why audio description is such a big deal. So Toby wasn't aware of the stuff that I'm talking about because he didn't have the audio description there. And I was on my own when I did this part, so ah, I don't know. Okay, right. So basically what happens in that scene is that before before Abby goes to chase down Ellie, she shoots Tommy, and it looks like, I mean, I literally froze the frame to check, and it looks like she shoots him in the head while he's on the ground. Oh, right, so okay. That, so that's why most people watching that who would have seen that scene would think that Tommy's dead. So when he comes back in the farm... It was like, wait a minute, what the hell? Like, I saw this man get shot. Like, he shouldn't be alive. And that's why it was it was a bit weird. It turns out that I, the bullet must have grazed his eye or something like that because his, one of his eyes is closed, so he's lost an eye from the gunshot. Uh, oh, so he's partially blind then? Yes, I think... Yeah, one of his eyes, I think, is, is gone or it's like is, is blind. I, I, I don't remember clearly, but one of his eyes is definitely like something's up with it. That's where he's got shot. And he's also got a limp because of Lev's uh, bow and arrow. So when he says to Ellie, well, I can't do it, that's why, because he's physically not capable of like trekking to California to try and take out Abby. So why did... Sorry, I have to ask this, because obviously I didn't know what was happening. Why, after the fight with Ellie, did Ellie say, stop, she's pregnant? Was Abby attacking Dina or something? Yeah, yes. See, this is all really interesting to me because, again, like, without audio description, so many things can still get missed even though you've got, like, the the story there. So, basically, what happens with that scene... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. This is (laughs) is really interesting for me, and I guess I get to help you understand those scenes a little bit better. Um, What happens in that scene is that, obviously, Abby and Ellie are fighting it out, fighting to the death, and basically, out of nowhere, Dina busts onto the scene and she tries to attack Abby to, to save Ellie. And so Abby, once she's already kind of beaten Ellie to a pulp, she grabs hold of Dina and she's about to kill Dina. Oh, right. Okay. So at, so at that moment, that's when Ellie says, stop, don't kill Dina, she's pregnant. And then Lev also appears in the scene like in the background Lev kind of opens the door slightly and Lev is there too and Abby kind of comes face to face with Lev and I think at that moment that's when she probably feels like I need to be a better example for someone like Lev or whatever that whatever her reasoning is and she refuses to kill Dina and she walks away ah well she sort of become became Lev's parent in a sense, I yeah. I, the, well, I I think what they tried to do with it with the story was that Abby and Lev kind of turned into a Joel and Ellie type situation, where Abby basically became Lev's Joel, if if that makes any sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and then I thought that bit at the end was sad. You know, when they were fight after the fight, and then you know, like I think Ellie tried to drown her, and then yeah, let her, I think she did the right thing though, not killing. Abby, mm-hmm. but I just had a vision after that part happened. I just had a vision of Abby saying, "Stop! I'm also immune." Ah, okay. You thought that's what that, that's what was going to happen. I'm wondering where they will take the story now in the third part if they do a third one. Yeah, and I think it will be about maybe 
how they defeat the virus once and for all. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the, when I got to the end of the game, I was a bit frustrated by the extent to which, you know, the actual business of, of the virus and like the cure and Ellie still being the cure and that kind of thing was all kind of forgotten in that story. But the way that it ended with Abby going to the Fireflies and the Fireflies have always been about trying to find the cure, it does feel like they're kind of setting up for like The Last of Us 3 where maybe the the focus kind of shifts back onto the infected, the infection, finding the cure and all that kind of thing. So I think it's possible. And maybe in the third game, Abby and Ellie and Abby will meet again, but maybe they will re- they will unite to work to help each other. They might forget what's happened in the past and just see for me, um that's one thing that I thought was gonna maybe happen in The Last of Us Two. So what I thought might happen is that okay, these two are supposed to hate each other like one hundred percent completely and rightfully so, but then something's gonna happen where they will have no choice but to work together to defeat something or to escape something or, or whatever. And as a result of that, then the narrative's going to be quite interesting. But it never happened. Well, I had well, I had visions during the Brat King fight that Ellie was going to run into the room. Ah. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I get you. Obviously... Yeah, because it, it was interesting. I mean, once I started playing through um, Abby's section, when she was fighting the Rat King, I was like, wait a minute, this is the same timing as when Ellie's in the hospital. So Ellie's upstairs taking out Nora while... Well, Abby's... Well, either that or, or it's either... Or as Abby leaves, Ellie arrives and they just miss each other by like a split second, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the two. I, I personally think that, that, that they might be in the hospital at the same time because Abby's down in the basement. She has no idea of what's going on and Ellie doesn't know she's down there either. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting like, to know that it was basically happening around the same time. Um, another accessibility feature that I forgot to mention, which is really useful, is VegGuard. Ah, okay. That, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's another thing that's definitely a very, very useful feature. I can definitely understand it. I think it's good because The Last of Us 2 was... It had a little bit more kind of climbing and traversal than the first game, but it wasn't like... You didn't, you didn't have to do any complicated climbing and swinging, and it, there wasn't too much of that kind of thing. So I think well... it was easier. Yeah, there was some complicated climbing, but not complicated, complicated, but especially one thing I loved, which was really done well, is the part where Abby and Lev are on those high bridges. Yeah, okay. And it really does a good job of showing Abby's hit fear of heights with her, like, fast breathing and stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. How does the, how did the balancing thing work? Like, how did you, because basically for a sighted person, what happens is that while you're uh, on like a bridge section where she has to keep her balance, you, you can physically see if she's losing her balance and you have to tilt the analog stick to keep her on balance. Was there anything like that when you were playing? It told the game, I did what the game told me, which was used to uh, uh, go horizontal with the analog stick. Okay. So I just... I just did what the game told me to do at that point, really. So did, uh, so did you fall off any ledge? Like, did you fall off during that point at all? Maybe the ledge guard thing stops Abby from No, because the ledge guard stops you from falling off. Okay, so that section is a, is a little bit different. I think uh, for sighted people, that section is a little bit more dangerous because I've, I've fallen off before. So uh, Abby can lose her balance and fall off if you don't keep the analog stick where it's supposed to be on those sections. 
But if it's a ledge that you can fall off, it does a different noise. But if it's a low sound, then it means that you're at death heights. Ah, okay. That's interesting. So if you sort of move to the right and you're on the edge, the game will make a noise and then vibrate to say, uh-oh, you don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. Because if you fall off there, you will die. <laughs> I mean, all in all, I mean, I think they've done a, a really, really great job of just allowing people that, that couldn't have experienced a story or a game like this before be able to complete. I think you said that you've completed it three times now. Well, technically twice, because the second playthrough I gave up on, because I wanted to do the YouTube playthrough. Ah, okay, right. But still, I mean, even that, I still think is is pretty mind blowing, just because there just there is no other there is no other game like it. Oh no, there's not. And you know, that night I defeated the Rat King when I was record like streaming, but then I also got past that horrible bit with where Tommy's trying to sniper you. Ah, yeah, that could be a difficult section, yeah. I mean, that section, especially when you get near the end and the horde of zombies appear near the end, that that was definitely difficult as well. Yeah, I really got... I got really stuck there and I had to actually adjust uh, the play difficulty setting to very light so I took less damage. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. One thing that I had heard of, I don't know if you experimented with it at all, was that... You can really like customize the the difficulty. I don't know if you know much about that. No, that's what I mean. I literally did customize the player difficulty so that it, I put it on very light. So I think, from what I heard, I haven't checked it in detail myself, but I think you know, like you have, let's say, light, very light, moderate. You can literally go into that setting and change. There's like ten, fifteen, twenty different gameplay settings that you can also change within those difficulties. From what I understand. Uh, well, in the main game, if you go into options and then difficulty, it brings up a list. So challenge, enemies, allies, player, resources, uh, stealth, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I thought that was really interesting. It's not something that I, that I personally dabbled with, but the f- the fact that there were so many different options, normally it's just like you either play on easy, normal, hard or extreme or whatever and there's no other choices i take it you i take it you sighted players can do that as well can't you in the options or not yeah i think so you can it's not something that i did personally but that's why i was uh, i wanted to mention it because it's 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 i thought it was really interesting i've not played a game that has that many like difficulty settings and that kind of thing as well i thought that was cool and it also has like an enhanced listen mode so you hold down r1 Press square if there's enemies or circle for items. Mm-hmm. And then you press left stick and it will take you to either that enemy or item. Nice. I think for, for me, like the, the Last of Us 2 was, was extra special in that sense because, you know, all those years ago when we made the documentary, literally, you know, after hearing your story and, and watching you, you play and all that kind of stuff, the, the, the biggest like motivation for, for doing that whole thing was let's let's tell more people about what's going on here and try to encourage you know the industry to to put more effort into making more accessible games and you know maybe like a year went by two years went by and we never really heard about any games that were trying to make a serious effort to have more accessibility so when the last of us 2 kind of announced that it was it was like this great like moment of vindication that like you know it probably had absolutely nothing to do with the documentary but just as as in 
it was a goal that we both had after the documentary and it finally became realized with the last of us too so in that sense it was really nice and one thing i really hope is that other game companies take this on board and make their games accessible i'm kind of i'm optimistic about that because Sony themselves are really big on it as well. Like it wasn't just like Naughty Dog or just The Last of Us that was promoting it. I think Sony was promoting it quite actively as well. So any game where Sony has like a hand in the development as well, I think, um, is there's there's going to be probably a greater likelihood of some good accessibility features as well. So I think you know The Last of Us Two is maybe like a like a milestone in that sense, and hopefully from now on there's going to be a lot more opportunities. This is a ma- this game is a major milestone in the games industry because they wanted to improve, like include accessibility from the start of development. Yeah, exactly. You could tell that this wasn't something where, like, you know, they made the game and then after they made it, they're like, eh, why don't we do a little bit of accessibility as well? It, it really seems like it, it was a it was an intention all along, and it, it was something that was built along with the game. So I think you've got to give them props for that. I agree because you know. They did a great job of it. They really did. But I'm sure... I. It's like one game I wish was accessible was the FF7 remake. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that too. I mean, I maybe for part two, who knows? I mean, it's, it seems unlikely. We'll probably have to wait a bit longer for the first like accessible Fire Fantasy game, but you never know. Is it going to be a part two then? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, almost certainly. I mean, I think that they're already in development for the second part of the remake. So you, it will happen, but it will probably take like another couple of years or so, I think, for it to come out. That's a shame because obviously, Seven Remake is such a major thing. But yeah, I think I think for for Final Fantasy, the the best the best realistic chance of getting like accessibility stuff is just modding. I think like if someone comes out who is able to mod, let's say Final Fantasy X to make it more accessible and stuff, I think that's probably some of the best opportunities we could have. Oh. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's this new game that a lot of people are talking about at the moment called Marvel's Avengers. Yeah, I think that's another Square Enix published title, I think, from what I know. But um, a few of my friends, I think, are trying it out today because they reckon it might have some, like, it might have accessibility features. Okay. It depends on what they are. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I think in general, I, I'm I'm pretty confident now that accessibility is is going to be like a it's going to be a thing. It's not going to be, you know, The Last of Us Two did it one time and then no no games did it again. I'm pretty sure it's going to be like a a much more common feature now in games moving forward. Oh, I really hope so. I really hope it does become a more used thing in games. Really hope it does. I mean, at least now, at least now we have clear proof that it can be done. You know, exactly, and I think that's what the gaming industry needed—proof that this can be done. And I think also proof that there's there's plenty of people that are going to benefit from it as well. I mean, I remember on Twitter I was seeing like let's say they, you know, they they shared a post about accessibility features, and it just had thousands and thousands of likes and retweets and that kind of thing. And even from like my own little community, there's there's people. There's a significant number of people out there that can benefit from these features, so I think it's it's just been great to see. You know, it's just such a major thing in the gaming world, what's happened with The Last of Us 2. It really is. Burke, and 
I still wonder if the documentary may have influenced that, but I don't know. Who knows? I mean, in any case, I mean, we did our best to, to kind of tell the story. And I'm sure maybe even if it didn't influence that particular thing, there might have been some people who've seen it who might one day be in the industry that might put a greater emphasis on that kind of stuff. But I think we should start wrapping things up here. But one thing I want to mention um, before we do is that, like I said, there was the, the version of the documentary that's on YouTube right now is a 15 minute cut. And that was like the first version that me and Toby made together. But then I went back and shot some more footage, like I mentioned. And there's a there's a really cool interview with Toby's dad, who did a, a fantastic job, and he was really really good to talk to. A great guy, and it's got you know some Final Fantasy Twelve content. It's got um, Toby playing um, Final Fantasy Twelve with James and that kind of thing. And that's like a, a 26 minute cut that was originally um, the rights were bought by this network, and since those rights expired like last year. I can broadcast it myself once again. So I think fairly soon after I'm airing this podcast, I'll upload the 26-minute cut as well. And I think anyone who hasn't seen it before, which pretty much should be everyone because I didn't really share it with very many people at all, the extended cut, you, you should definitely check it out and I think you'd really enjoy it. I agree because I actually feel that that version is a lot more in-depth about everything yeah i mean i think getting to, to to talk to your dad was huge as well because i think um one of the 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 coolest things about making the the documentary for me is i i always tell people about this moment i don't know if i shared it with you specifically before but obviously when i came to to interview you i had like a list of questions um you know that, that i wanted to ask you and one of the questions was like a a very generic sort of question where i wanted to find out like in terms of your your general life, like day-to-day -day life sort of thing, what are the, the difficulties of, of, of being blind, basically? And that's I remember asking you that. And you, like, very sincerely and kind of honestly just kind of just said nothing that I can really think of. Like you, you said it in such a, like, a confident and honest and sincere way that it really struck me. And it wasn't something, like, because of the way it played out, I couldn't put it in the documentary, but I really like that aspect. And I think when I got to speak to your dad and meet your family and that kind of thing, it really it really made everything hit home. And, you know, I think your your mum and dad did such a, you know, fantastic job of, you know, giving you all of the opportunities that they that they could and, you know, for allowing you to experience the world as best you can and not kind of, you know, feeling like a victim or feeling like you can't do something. So I th I thought it was just a, a really amazing story and I loved, you know, the whole energy around the documentary and your family and that kind of stuff. It was great. I really enjoyed making it and, you know, I think it really has helped in terms of showing people about how people like me to play games like Final Fantasy and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, especially the extended version with your dad and stuff, I think it just, it, it, it also sends, I think, a more general like a broader message about, you know, having the right sort of mindset and mentality to try and get the most out of life. And I think that's a, a really good message oh, as well. Oh, I agree. One thing I forgot to mention, do you remember when we both went to that film festival? Yes. And we both won awards. Yes, I, I remember. That was a great day. So um, uh, Toby's family and my family, we both attended. Uh, it was the Rob Knox Film Festival in London. And um, I, I won the documentary for, sorry, I won the award for best documentary. 
and Toby won like a special award for you know just generally inspirational or something yeah being like such a great inspiration to the community and that kind of stuff because obviously outside of the documentary Toby's made appearances on a bunch of other things as well and that kind of thing maybe you want to tell us what other stuff that you've been on well I've been on a few TV different TV programs in the past like a program on Channel 4 called Blinded, mm-hmm. which unfortunately doesn't really exist now. But right. we've also been on uh, Inside Out London. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other week I got interviewed by a YouTube channel called Theory of a Blind Man about my experience with The Last of Us Part 2. Nice. Uh, me and two of my other friends also in another podcast purely about accessible gaming uh, called Redders and Jeffers Gaming, uh, which you can find on Facebook as a group. Mm-hmm. I was also interviewed on RNIB, the RNIB radio station, about my gaming experiences. So there's a lot that's happened. Yeah, so I mean, if anyone listening in, you know, Toby is, uh, is in general, he's the kind of guy that loves to interact with people. He loves to, to share his story. Uh, he loves to help, you know, that that kind of thing. So if you ever want to, you know, talk to him, you want to get some advice, you want to you want to help him, you want him to help you, that kind of thing. He's, he's always open to, to, you know, being contacted and, and being invited to things and that kind of stuff. So if anyone wants to, to work with Toby on anything, he, I'm sure you're happy to help with that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining me, Toby. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Oh, same here, Burke. I've really enjoyed it. And I assume if there's a way that you can maybe put a bit of footage in of how The Last of Us accessibility works or something. I don't know if there's a way you can show that on here or whatever. But Yeah, I, I will be. I think as background footage, if you don't mind, I'm going to use your The Last of Us 2 uh, playthrough, like different segments of that, I think. Yeah, you should definitely take the Rat King segment because... How I killed that was just shocking, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely use that. Obviously, because, um, you know, we're going to be talking, I won't have the, the audio on because obviously it's going to, you know, it's going to interrupt our talking and that kind of thing. But just as like a yeah, just as like a visual guide for, for sighted people, just of how you navigate and that kind of stuff, I think it definitely could be fun background footage. But maybe there's one more part in your playthrough. Like, I don't know if there's a, or even like a little hangout thing as well. Just to show people how the audio cues sound or something. I don't know if there's a way you can do this, but like if there's a way you can show sort of how good the like text to speech is or yeah. the audio cues actually work with the game, you know, to like actually make the game. I, when I was watching your playthrough, I, I did think about doing something like that as well. So I might try and do like a, like a little blindfolded session of, um, of The Last of Us 2 with the accessibility features just to see how I get on. It could be fun. Well, I, how about make it even more interesting? I join you for it and I help you instead of you helping me for a change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something I could definitely look into. So uh, if I'm going to do some of that, I'll, I will hit you up on it and we'll see. It, it could definitely be a unique experience. Yeah, well, um, thank you for letting me be a part of your podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, man. I will speak to you soon. Thanks for joining me. Take care.